Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Well, that was amazing. Um, I just love hearing when they come back from Hume Lake. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me? Sorry. Um, But it's always so uplifting, and the kids come back, and they're just glowing. So that's, that's just beautiful. So thank you for sharing, and thank you, Lena, for just taking that on. The, like, the youth really need um, support, and we're just so appreciative that you were willing to take that on your shoulders. <laughs> so if you guys want to know more about, if you have kids in high school, please connect with Lena, because she will want to have you engage, and this is a really good way to get connected to Journey. But um, I'm going to read the scripture today, so if you're able to, just please join me in standing. Today's uh, scripture is from Matthew chapter 16, 1 through 14. Genesis? Oh, it says Matthew. (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) It says Matthew. Um, So I'm just going to read this because (laughs) now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Or Sarah, sorry. So after Abraham had children by her, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham had, Abraham, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting all tongue-tied. Abram's, um, had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarah, Abraham, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and he, she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with her contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your, embra- to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered by multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and shall bear her a son, and bear a son. 
You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Kinsmen. So he called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Thanks, Dana. So I would not have picked this text typically uh, on the heels of incredible youth testimony. <laughs> but nonetheless, this is where we are. But as I began to think about it and meditate on it, it's actually a perfect text on the heels of that. And here's why, because it speaks about uh, untold abuse in slavery, misogyny, misconduct with women. And here, here's why this is so important. Just, just follow, I'm going to talk to the youth for just one minute. This is why this, this is so important for you to learn because you just came from an amazing experience where God met you and spoke to you on the fundamental things of the faith. But when you get into college and you get into the world, what people will tell you is texts like this is why you cannot be a Christian. That when the Bible talks about these kind of stories, it, it is uh, from a God in a world of people who actually make the world worse. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist, uh, spoke in this sentiment. He said this, religion has been an enormous multiplier of cultural problems. It is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women, coercive towards children. Organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. And you know what? Frankly, he's got a point. There was a statistic out of Baylor University uh, about 10 years ago that says in a church of about 400 people, on average, 32 people in that congregation have undergone sexual misconduct from a pastor. There have been denominations that have been started out of racism. There have been untold amounts of dollars embezzled through the church all kinds of evil things that people like Hitchens can point to that's not a lie. And Christians have to sort of say, we can still believe. How? Here's how. Here's the lesson in this text. You cannot, though, read this text as though the Bible is saying this is okay, because it's not. What it's actually going to showing is how Abraham's and Sarah's life is actually coming apart at the seams because of these decisions. But the lesson in the text that you've got to see this morning is that the God of Christianity doesn't ignore these stories. He doesn't suppress these stories. He enters into these stories. And here's how you and I are going to enter in and learn from this story. Three things. From the spiral of Sarah... Two, the crisis of Abraham, but three, the healing of Hagar. And this is how Christians ought to think about messes in the Bible. One, the spiral of Sarah. So what she does, it says in verse 6 that Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. 
Now, what's profound about this is uh, it's the same Hebrew language that you find in the book of Exodus when the Egyptians are abusing the Israelites for not making bricks the same way. Now, remember the book of Genesis is our stories told by Moses to the Israelites in the wilderness, so the language would have jumped off their ears. And, and this person, who was their forefather, were told, treated this woman in the same way. She took a vulnerable woman, gave her to her husband, had her impregnate her, excuse me, had him impregnate her, and when Hagar doesn't respond well and go along with it, she beats her. Now, why? I mean, it's, it's quite easy and it's quite foolish for us to say, well, she's just a bad apple and she's an awful person, and to blame it on religion. But I, I think that is both lazy and foolish. Um, Elizabeth Holmes, you may or may not know that name, um, very famous story of the last 10 years. She uh, dropped out of Stanford in 2003 and started a company called Theranos. It was a, a device a medical device that was going to uh, make great advancement in blood testing. And she became the youngest billionaire in the history of, of, of wealth. Her company took off. What it was designed to do was to be a product that was going to be sold to places like CVS and make incredible breakthrough in medical advancement. The problem was the whole thing was a scam, and she knew it. And what happened was People got this device and were diagnosed for diseases they never had, and some people had a very serious illness, and it never got diagnosed, and they died from it. And as the story came out, I mean, people just were coming out of the woodworks just saying, this is untold evil, and she is a horrible person and a unique kind of evil. But there was a documentary that done on her, and there was a Duke professor, Dan Ariely, who said, hold, 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 and slow down. If you jump to that conclusion on her, you're going to make a very foolish mistake. Here's what he said. If you look at her at the end of the story, you could think, how could she do this? But that would miss the whole point. If you look at the beginning, it becomes a cautionary tale about all of us. If we end up saying this is one bad apple in one bad industry, that's a bad lesson because this is about the human condition. If it's for a good cause, you can do anything and still think of yourself as a good person. Look, the point of this story and the point of Sarah it is it's not that tyrants exist. It's to learn what makes a tyrant a tyrant. And it is something that is way more subtle. Look, look in verse 5, after all she does this, Sarah comes to her husband and she's complaining about this poor little woman not reacting well to this horrible evil that she's done. And Eugene Peterson translates this way. He says, imagine Sarah coming and saying, it's all your fault that I'm suffering this kind of reaction and abuse from her. I put my maid in bed with you, and the minute she knows she's pregnant, she treats me like I'm nothing. May God decide which of us is right. She still thinks she's doing what God thinks is okay. She has a conscience enough to still come and say, maybe God will tell you all that I had the whole right to do this the whole time. It never occurs to her. 
that it could slip this fast. And you know why? Because it's a spiral. Here's the spiral. It works in this way. It begins with a good desire. This is how evil begins, always with idols. I mean, Sarah, where does she come from? She says, I don't have a child, and God has given us this great promise that the world is to be changed through our family. She just wants a baby. But secondly, it comes because of concerning circumstances. See, it it doesn't come, the good thing that you want, it doesn't come in the pace and the pattern that you need it to come at. She's been given this promise, it's 23 years later, and she's growing impatient. She's getting nervous. Then, see, you begin to doubt God's goodness. It's amazing in the first couple of verses. She's not only saying that I don't know if God is going to come through on this promise. She starts blaming him and saying he's preventing me from being pregnant. And this good thing that you want, this good thing that you're after, this good thing that you're owed that is not coming to you, you not only don't think God is faithful, you begin to turn on Him. Then you begin to take a decision, make a decision to take matters into your own hands. And this is almost always by looking at the culture around you and doing what everyone else is doing. Sarah didn't do anything unique. Everyone in the culture did this kind of thing. If you didn't have enough children, if you didn't have enough workers for your farm, if you didn't have enough people for your estate, and your wife couldn't have any more babies or she was pregnant, you just turned to your mistress and you got more children that way and you got more workers this way. This is how the cultural did it. And what people will do, what you'll be tempted to do, is when God is not giving what you want, you will look out of the world and see how successful people are getting it and follow the same pattern. Then what happens is disillusionment and blame shifting. Because when Sarah does this, she never, ever, ever has a registered conscience. She never thinks, is God for this? Is God against this? What happens is she begins to be furious at Hagar's reaction and then blames Abraham for what she's undergoing herself. Now, mercy. How many of you want good things? for your children, for your career, for this church. Because what we have to just stop and admit is that all of us, just like Elizabeth Holmes, are prone to do these kinds of things. And when we've seen evil in the church, this is how it happens. From the beginning of wanting good things and not being able to trust God, and so we look at the culture and do exactly as they do. God forbid we go down that spiral. But you need to know that he stands against it. But there's something that makes it worse, and that's the crisis of Abram. Look at this. I mean, what does Abram do when Sarah proposes this idea? She comes to him with her concern and discouragement, proposes this evil solution to her problem, and then it says in verse 2 that Abraham listened to her. Uh, that's a Hebrew word uh, that means to, to cave into, to yield to, to submit to. And then he sleeps with Hagar, impregnates her, and when she's angry, he looks at her in verse 6 and says, well, she's your mistress, do what you want. Basically like, that's not my problem. You deal with it. 
And the two lessons here that are incredibly important about the nature of abuse and evil. There, there's something to learn about the enabling of its presence and the dilemma of it. It's so dangerous how evil and abuse can happen and we can be in a position that doesn't participate in it, but we enable it. I mean, this is a quite stunning passage because it comes on the heels of Genesis 15. If you were here last week, we looked at this passage that is one of the most profound ones for the whole Bible, where God comes to Abram and makes this covenant with him about what the promise of the gospel will be. And he doesn't just say it like at a casual conversation. He demonstrates it through a literal contract covenant that is acted out before him. And when Sarah is coming and proposing this evil solution, it never, like Abraham never said, you know, I know you're nervous. I know you're uncomfortable with this, but I, I literally just talked to God yesterday. And he, and he showed this to me, and we need to just keep trusting. And what we see happen is that the need to please Sarah and the need for Abram's own comfort and his own personal peace supersedes the promises of God. And one of the most dangerous things that we can do in the church and the most sobering evils that we've got to wake up to Look, it is not just creating patterns of evil and not just participating in it, but watching it happen and doing nothing with it. Just choosing our own silence. Just walking into our own corner and making sure that I'm comfortable. And men, this is one of the most horrific things that men have done over the last several centuries is not just do things, but to watch things, to chicken out, and to let it go on. John Stuart Mill, giving an address, 1867, at the University of St. Andrews, you may have heard this quote, said this, let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion Bad men need nothing more to, to compass their ends than good men should look on and do nothing. He is not a good man who without a protest allows wrong to be committed in his name and with the means which he helps to supply because he will not trouble himself to use his mind on the subject. Here's some questions Glenn Shiver, he's a minister in England, asks for us. And ask yourself these questions. Do I prioritize peace and quiet over a biblical peace that may disrupt the status quo around me? Am I minimizing the evils perpetrated for the sake of a quiet and calm life? Am I playing the family card or the loyalty card to silence or control people? You know, I, I can't do anything about it. What do you want me to say to my brother? How am I supposed to talk to my cousin about this? He's my uncle. You go do it. Am I seeking to resolve issues in, in the light or manipulate him under the cover of darkness? As in, let's just settle this between us. Surely we can work this out between you and me. Do I take matters into my own hands while I allow the light to shine from the outside? The crisis of Abraham 
is something that all of us, in some form or fashion, will be exposed to. But there's another part of it about the crisis of Abraham, and that's the dilemma of its presence. Because this is a man who is also regarded in the book of Hebrews as a Hebrew of faith, who the promise of the gospel is built on, and the New Testament writers write incessantly about how we can understand and know God. It's through this life and through this testimony and through the way and God works in him. And there's an incredible pattern here that you've got to be aware of all through the Bible where someone has a tremendous encounter of God and then does unbelievable failure. And you've got to know this in light of the week that you just had because some people will have this incredible experience with God and then two weeks later do something that they never ever thought they would be capable of doing and it makes them doubt the entire experience they had. But look, Abraham's struggle and his sin here is not the absence of faith. It's the reason you need faith. Because you are not saved by how you live in light of the promises of God. You are saved unconditionally by grace and the promise of God's intervention through His Son. And then you're called to appropriate and live in light of that. And if you don't mix that up, you'll never get Christianity. Because some of you are going to go out and blow it big time this fall, and you'll think Hume was a fraud. And what you've got to understand is it's not the absence of faith, it's not the doubt of faith, this is the pattern of faith. So what do we do as a church when our leaders and people in the church do struggle this way? Because it's an easy cop-out to go, well, repentance. The essence of Christian faith is not to look to the church. It's to look to the person who saves the church. There's only one person who ever went through tremendous nearness to God and temptation and came out okay, and that's Jesus. He goes and has a baptism. And it says literally that whatever this means, the heavens parted open and the Holy Spirit came down like a dove in an audible voice you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the very next thing is he goes out in the wilderness and is tempted by the devil for 40 days. And he passes the test. Everyone else fails. And so when you see people in the church and the church continue to blow it, if you begin to lose your faith, your faith is way too much in the people of God and the church itself and in not who actually came to save and redeem the church. The crisis of Abraham ought to wake you up and remind you who came for the crisis. The way that we are to think about the problems in this text in the Bible, it, it is through the spiral of Sarah, the crisis of Abraham, but thirdly, you've got to see the healing of Hagar because how is this not a cop-out to just sort of say, trust Jesus? I mean, how does that help victims of abuse, especially if some of you have been abused or misused? In verses 7 through 9, what happens is this poor woman begins to run. And who can blame her? She's running through the desert, probably with nowhere to go, 
no resources to survive, and it says an angel of the Lord comes and meets her in the middle of the desert. Now, why does it meet her in the middle of the desert? Because the wilderness and the desert is always the place where God meets you. It's the place where you have nowhere else to turn. It's the place where you've got nothing else to stand on. It's the place where you finally understand your need. And you know what your need is? All you need is need. That's all you need. That's all you need to meet God. Need. And you'll never know that more than in the midst of the desert. And what Hagar's need is, is actually to go back and deal with her abuser. Now, think about this. This is stunning. She's running. She's been hurt. And the angel of the Lord, which is a a theological way of saying, God in the Old Testament, come in the flesh, says, the most needful thing that you have right now for this horrible situation you have is to return and go face your pain. Because if you don't deal with your pain, your pain will deal with you. Do you notice that this is the saddest statistic in abuse? Nine out of ten people who abuse somebody have themselves been abused. And it's, it's just so clear. If you don't deal with this, you will take this out on somebody else. And so when the angel of the Lord comes and says, return and deal with this, he's not saying, let's keep the system going, let's, let's cover this up, don't tell anybody about it. He's saying, I'm going to deal most thoroughly with you so you never let this follow you through your life. But she's going, I'm going to have a child. Of course it's going to follow through my life. And what the angel of the Lord then says is, but you know what, but this child... A great nation will come from him. A great people will come from him. And you know what? This doesn't translate to us, but in the ancient Near East, there's not a better thing you could have heard. This is the most profound gift anybody could have been given. That you're out of your child, an amazing nation will come. And what Hagar does is she hears this. And she does something that no one had done before and no one's done since. She gives God a name. She says, you are the God who sees me. L-O-I. And this is the same Hebrew word that when David is seen by Samuel, remember Samuel comes and wants to see Jesse's boys and he's like, well, that's the most attractive one. Surely that's the king. He's like, nope. And he goes down the list. Well, that's the handsome one. That's the rich one. That's the smart one. And Jesse's like, that, that, that's all the kids I've got. He's like, well, there's a runt that nobody would want out there. And when Samuel goes and sees David, it's the same word here that Hagar gives to God. It's as if God can see what is attractive that the world will never find attractive. That God can see what's beautiful, what the world will never see is beautiful. And when she says, you are the God who sees me, you know what she's saying? She's saying, the world doesn't want me, but you want me. And the world will mock me for this, but you will do something incredible with this. She realizes that this baby 
who was given to her in the worst of circumstances, was given to her in abuse, in rape, in misogyny, in control, God is going to turn it upside down and do something incredible out of. There's a place in my brother's Karamazov where Dostoevsky talks about somebody dealing with incredible pain, and I think it's maybe the best thing ever written in literature. He says this, I believe like a child, suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all of hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but listen, but to justify all that has happened. And Hagar, in this moment, is saying, you are a God who works like that. And you know what? You can believe that. Here's how. There's some real irony in her saying, you're a God who sees because the, the ancient Israelites believed that if anybody saw God, they would die. How in the world could it be good news for God to see us? Because the previous time that God came and saw was in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve had sinned, and they're naked, and when God comes, they hide. And what she understands is that, God, you will see something that will make me so beautiful that I will be able to see you. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 for us says this, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And here's what that means. When Jesus was on the cross dying, God made him to be all of the abuse all of the injustice, all of the evil that you and I and the church has accrued for forever. And when he saw him, he gave the justice that Hagar deserved. She, she absolutely deserves justice and payment for what was done for her. And God says, I will see that done in my son on the cross so that what it means to be a Christian is you stand in Christ and you believe so that when God sees you, he sees somebody who stood up against justice, who never participated in it, who fought for it. There, there, are, there are countless times if, in the Gospels, if you read this, where it says Jesus saw her and had compassion on her. Jesus saw them and wept for them. And what that verse means is when God sees you by faith, He sees that. So that when He sees you, the horrific stories can become beautiful stories in the end. And He can accept you and receive you. And you live in that. You can stand up against abuse, and actually you can leave, even live in it. I've often wondered what Hagar was like when she stood in glory. Just an outcast Egyptian, 
mistress. Clearly not important to the people of Israel. And somebody just goes, who are you? She said, my name is Hagar. Never heard of you. What's your story? And as she tells people her story, I'm thinking, how in the world did you survive that? We didn't know you. No one was there to help you. How could you stand that? She said, well, you didn't see, but God saw. May we see with him. Let me pray. Father, for whatever we've gone through and seen and tasted in the church, Lord, with the blood of Jesus, with the healing of Jesus, come and make it whole again and help us and restore us. Lord, give us leadership that will never let it happen, that will fight against it, that will fight for the Hagars. And we do pray, Lord, for all of the Hagar stories that you would help us, Lord, to see what you see and to throw arms of love and healing around them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.